Okay, apparently Cliffside is alive. That's really amazing. Some would think otherwise. But here we are, April the 28th, 2019, lecture discussion number, I think it's 61 because it did not count first fruits as Joel. So I think I'm right, but I see where first fruits is called 61, Joel, and this therefore would not be 61, it would be 62, but I have to have that, I have to have the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority take care of that for me. But in any event, it is probably 62 by the internet standards on the book of Joel. And it's a sunny, warm day today. For those of you on the internet, if you want to know what the weather's like, it's beautifully warm today. We call that 51 degrees. But it, uh, uh, that's what we like about Alaska is that strong 51 degree day. I guess it's snowing in Detroit and Chicago, which we all love to see happen. That is fantastic. Okay, I've got a bunch of letters. I mean, I'm getting just getting pounded here, so we have to read my letters. Uh, we'll kind of go in some kind of order. I start with, uh, well, actually, I should probably it says I'm starting with Susan. So let's start with Susan. Uh, and she doesn't identify where she's from, but Susan T. I'll I'll say that it's. Uh, 1953, she says, so I'm assuming that she and I are the same age. I hope for her sake that's not true. <coughs> Pastor Chronister, she writes, Last November, I went on sermon audio, looking for a sermon on Genesis. How many sermons on Genesis do we have, Dave? 500? I don't know what we got. Our ladies at church were doing a study on Genesis 1 through 11. Being the leader of the Bible study ministry, I felt the need to dig into this incredible book. As God would have it, I clicked on your name and began listening to the Genesis series. (laughs) This is not going to go well, is it? You know, well, I'll get to that in a second. I was hooked, she said. She writes, listening to your sermons first thing in the mornings, during the evenings, and in the middle of the night when sleep evaded me. There are several ladies that take turns teaching at Bible study. So when it was my turn, I was so excited to share what I was learning. Oh, boy. Oh, dear. Is that great? I was scheduled to teach on Genesis 4. So I shared what I had learned about Cain's bloodless offering and how the correct sacrifice was established. Absolutely correct, Susan. You just did fantastic. When God shed innocent blood for a covering for Adam and Eve. She did that perfectly. And I should say this really fast. I have a whole lot more Adam and Eve Genesis 3 stuff, don't I? Now, Dave, somewhere? Is it a Roman series? Is that what it is? Okay, Roman series. So, Susan, there's the, there is the next phase of Genesis in the Romans. Uh, somehow, Genesis and Romans fit together. What a shock. But anyway, back to this. She explained beautifully, I'm sure she did, how Cain's bloodless offering was established in the offerings of Adam and Eve. And I'll, I'll reinforce that a little bit today. Then I asked the question, why was Cain cursed and Adam and Eve not? Uh, there's a little, uh, there's a, that's a, a nuanced situation, but I'll, I'll say to her, she did well there as well. Why do many believe that Adam was a man who stood there by Eve's side and watched her take the fruit and then blame her for his own actions? A great question. And more acceptable than seeing Adam as a super intelligent man who was not deceived and who was deeply loved his wife, which makes him a picture of Christ, which is exactly what he is, Romans 5. 
I think it is the greatest love story ever. How about that, uh, Catherine? And can't wait to write a book. No, I'm kidding. We, uh, I can't wait to, to talk to Eve someday. Uh, Susan, we have someone actually who shares your enthusiasm for this, and she is writing a book about it. Several ladies came up afterwards and said that that really made sense and had questions, and it was awesome until I got a phone call. <laughs> Calling me to the principal's office. Dun, 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 dun. That's, that's what she actually writes. I used to be a school teacher. The ladies, or at least some, were confused. I didn't explain things as well as you do. I'm not sure that's true. Maybe I need Diet Coke when I'm teaching, and a fat pen, a big eraser, and a holy whiteboard. And that would not have helped, Susan. Take my word for it. I apologize to the ladies for the confusion I caused, but not the message. I actually attend a great theologically sound church where Christ Jesus is proclaimed and preached every Sunday. It is where I learned and eat from God's word, but finding Cliffside has been the meat and potatoes of my learning. I was going to say it was the ice cream of delight, but that sounds like fluff, which in no way describes the way you teach. I'm glad you put teach. I was thinking for a second. Sometimes at 3.30 a.m. when you are teaching quantum physics, I turn my laptop off with the words, Man, you are killing me. (laughs) However, I'm understanding a little bit and haven't turned you off in quite a while. (laughs) That's it. Thank you so much for what you do for all us dingleberries out in the web. We are in, are we in void one or zero? Like many others, I consider Cliffside Community Chapel my online church family. Sincerely, Susan. Well, thank you for that, Susan. And you brought up Genesis 3, which happens to be going to fit right in. Here comes Ralph Lorraine from New Zealand. In listening to your recent revelation, or I'm sorry, your recent message in Revelation, it says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And that he is he that is holy, let him be holy still. That's Revelation 22.11. It is a very difficult scripture. And Ralph Lorraine grabbed a hold of that. And he asked this. Why does he mention righteous and holy as two different things? Are they different? If not, why mention it twice? If yes, what is the difference? Given the depravity of man, how does one become holy? How does one become righteous? Is it referring to imputed righteousness and the holiness by faith alone in Christ alone at the point of salvation? Or is it referring to the status infused in the sanctification process? Does the application of 1 John 1.9 have any bearing on this process? Yes, Mr. Dude, it is a trick question. May you fare well. Just kidding, my coke-slurping, KFC-chewing friend. Please announce a big hello from us in New Zealand to the church before you, and yes, blessings to you and Mrs. Dude, Ralph and Lorraine. Hence why now they're Ralph Lorraine. Finally, last one today, but I hope you'll see how they all fit in as we go along. I've got to really pick up speed here. Dear Pastor Chronister and Cliffside Church, this is from Stuart from... uh, um, I believe he's from Northern Ireland. Let me make sure about that. I'm confident that he is from Ireland. Oh, yes, Northern Ireland. Ireland. 
I wanted to reach out to you with a short word of thanks for your most excellent ministry. I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ a little less than a year ago on Sunday, 10th of June, 2018. One of my early prayers was that the Lord would lead me in the paths of sound doctrine. I felt it was important as I had spent over 40 years in darkness and therefore had no time to waste. And I am delighted to report that part of the reply from Almighty God was my discovery of the wonderful cliffside and have since become a regular member of your vast Internet audience. Naturally enough, I am learning an incredible amount from your profound and extensive lectures, and I freely admit to feeling rather pleased with myself when you cover something that I have already drawn my own conclusion upon, and there is concurrence of opinion. For example, <laughs> in your most recent First Fruits lecture, Black Hole Singularity. <laughs> Oh, I have proof. There's one person that liked that lecture right here. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I was delighted to learn that you shared my skepticism regarding the recent apparent discovery of the alleged black hole. Uh, let me, I've I got to move a little faster. Anyway, I... Oh, I guess I'm going to have to go. While I was unable to express my doubt with the same level of scientific eloquence with which you've conveyed your reasoning, I couldn't help be struck by the remarkable fortune of the team of researchers involved in finding a black hole that bore such an eerie resemblance to all the speculative artist renderings preceding their discovery. In other words, the black hole ended up being exactly what they had conceived it would be. How fortuitous, right? And mathematically ridiculous. Unless, of course, the said discovery was simply... Uh, a, a uh, contrived event. Anyway, I told you this so I could tell you this. And he goes on to tell me that he is he has a pre-wrath position with regard to the uh, rapture. That is um, Rosenthal, Marvin Rosenthal. Stuart, if you are not familiar with Marvin Rosenthal, he is the one that uh, frankly articulated the pre-wrath position the best. There is a book out there uh, that is obviously... Uh, trying to be contravening to him, uh, written by Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, and others. There's quite a bit of them. It's called the, um, oh my gosh, I can't come up with the title of the book right now. I'm just getting old. He writes, none of the arguments I had previously heard for a pre-tribulational rapture position had a significant substance or had been challenging enough to cause pause for thought in this position until I happened upon your discussions of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which I admit has shaken my conviction and created an appetite for a healthy re-examination of the rapture ideas on my behalf. I'm still not convinced, but your ideas set forth a very plausible case, which I haven't heard anywhere else, which I guess is very cliffside. In any event, I am thrilled to have found cliffside, and I'm slowly working my way through the previous lectures on first roots, all of which are as weird as the last one. I had no idea Bible study was going to be this much fun, and so I will end the short note by requesting that you please keep taking us to the places that other pastors fear to tread. Stuart, a member of your congregation from Northern Ireland, P.S., can someone give me an idea of how much it costs to cover the buffet each week? And if there are any other church requirements I could contribute towards, I have many thanks. So there he is worried about your food intake. From Northern Ireland. I thought that was wonderful. Um, yeah, we have cake today, Stuart. It's cake day. So, Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to give you two. 
this is where he is. He's at Revelation 3.10, and he is at Revelation, no, yes, uh, 2.22. Let me make sure I'm right about that. Yeah. This is two verses that, is, that are very difficult for the, uh, for the non-rapture people to deal with, or the post-tribulation rapture. So I will get to those again uh, later on, but I just wanted to put those on for Stuart and, uh, as we get going. So he'll have them right at the beginning. Okay, Stuart, Susan, and Ralph Lorraine. Notice how I've stuck it to Ralph Lorraine. I hope that's okay. Have all brought forward applicable passages with respect to our current location, which is Revelation 2.18. To the end, I believe. I think it's 29. Might be, that might be wrong. But it's going to be close. That's the fourth church. That's Thyatira, as you know. Of the seven churches that comprise the prophecy of Revelation 1-3. I cannot put Revelation 1-3 on the board enough. Uh, and again, I'll put Thyatira here. The fourth church. Of the seven church prophecy. They, the seven churches comprise the prophecy in total of Revelation 1-3. And Jesus Christ himself, and remember, he's the infinite creator God. He says so. The beginning and the end is him saying that he's infinite. It's also saying that he is timeless. And he says of Revelation 1-3... Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And this prophecy is the seven church prophecy of which Thyatira is the fourth church. It is one-seventh of the seven church prophecy. And that alone, I would have thought, would cause everyone to read, every Christian to read the seven church prophecy. And, and yet it doesn't. As you might have expected, hardly any churches read the seven church prophecy. So why is this a blessing? And he doesn't imply that it is a blessing for the last church. He implies that it is a blessing for all the churches. Again, I have this consolidation, if you will. I don't have succession. I have a totality. And that alone, as I said, just blessed is he who reads Everyone should be reading it. Just read it. Maybe you don't understand it, but apparently they're just reading it is incredibly valuable to you. And Ralph Lorraine have asked about the five times in Revelation 22. They've asked about Revelation. Let me put them on the board so they can find them. 22, 7, 9, 10, 18, and 19. That letter, that, that, that question that Ralph wrote is dealing with those scriptures with regard to Revelation 1-3. Because he brought up Revelation 22-11. Which is, as again, a very difficult, if you read any commentary, they're all going to start the same. This is really hard. We don't know what to do with it. And of course, it, uh, uh, it is because they don't make the correct connections. This, these five places is where the blessing of Revelation 1-3 are brought up by Christ again. 
the prophecy, the blessing of Revelation 1-3 is referenced in Revelation 22. So you begin to see this, don't you? You begin to see the Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, both of them mentioning the blessing of the prophecy of Revelation 1-3. I hope that made sense to you. Susan, on the other hand, has brought the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan, and who presides over that? Well, that is Christ himself is the judge, and he is presiding as the Ancient of Days. It's the first place the Ancient of Days is demonstrated, even though it's not as obvious as you may think. But it's clearly him as the Ancient of Days presiding as judge because he looks like he looks when he is judge. And, and, um, and of course, that resurfaces at Thyatira, the fourth church. Here he is again. This is an Ancient of Days Context, if you will. And so she brings up Ancient of Days and the establishment of the blood. As as Susan pointed out, Revelation 3, as you know, establishes the blood, both with the coverings of Adam and Eve and the rejection of Cain's offering. Both of those are a blood issue. And on this, I'm going to say really fast, the Bible is relentless. Continually, it pounds away. Verse after verse after verse, blood, 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 blood. The sacrificial system is is blood. That's the most prominent example. The book of, of the Levites, Leviticus, is an instruction manual with its singular purpose demonstrating that the atonement of sin requires blood. Leviticus is 18,852 words of testimony, typology, symbols. All of them speak of Christ, and he is the blood covering, as Susan said so wonderfully, that is pictured at Genesis 3.21. For whatever reason, the church today doesn't like that. In fact, they flat out deny it. I don't know why. They don't so much deny the blood covering, but they deny it with respect to Genesis 4. I should make that more clear. They'll say, okay, I'll give you blood covering in Genesis 3, but when we get to Genesis 4, no blood covering. It has nothing to do. Genesis 3 has nothing to do with Genesis 4, is what they'll say. And I've never understood how this became the standard theological opinion. You go to most seminaries, they'll all tell you the same thing. It has nothing to do. The offerings of Cain and Abel are about the contents of... Abel's, I'm sorry, of Cain's heart. It's what he thought, not what he brought. Well, what he brought was manifested by what he thought. I'll give you that. But what he brought was the physical evidence of what he thought. Blood is everywhere in the Bible. Leviticus is soaked in blood. The blood coverings, Adam and Eve are soaked in blood. But not the commentarists, the theologians, the scholars in the universities or the seminaries. This, there is no blood issue at Genesis 4. Genesis 3 is somehow isolated from Genesis 4, they will insist. And the central, but the central point of Genesis 3 is the blood covering. It's the whole point of Genesis 3 is the blood covering. How can that not be the lesson of Genesis 4? It makes no sense. And why would anyone want to have this kind of view, the bloodless position? What's communion? Is it about grapes? Is it about Twinkies? No, it's about blood and flesh. The establishment of communion by the good shepherd at Passover certainly connects to Abel the shepherd. Who cannot see that? Who 
was the first shepherd to bleed to death, if you will? Abel is a picture of Christ. Apparently, the, the, the people that don't see that are the ones who write all the Genesis commentaries of the last hundred years. And I, I don't know what to say. Well, I do. I do know what to say. They're afraid of the accusation. What is the accusation? The church is accused of something. So is Judaism, but primarily the Christian church. Christians are accused of being a religion of blood. You are a religion of blood, they say to us. Are they right? Yeah. Yay. We should go, yes, you're right. Whose blood are we a church of? Yeah. Okay, I kind of got a bit off track there. Anyway, Susan brings Genesis 3-4 to the Thyatira discussion where it belongs because of the Ancient of Days and because of the issue of blood. Ralph Lorraine bring Revelation 22. Uh, I, I should put these on there for them as well because they're way over there in New Zealand. 1 John 8-10. 2 uh, Corinthians 2.16 and Daniel 12.10. Um, no time today to read all four of those passages. Just know that those are the four most often read whenever they get to Revelation 22, 7 through 19. So those fit with Revelation 22, 7 through 19, uh, 15, I'm sorry. Uh, let me read Revelation 7 through 22, 7 through 15, so you get it illustrated in. This is, uh, again, uh, they're right. These things are really difficult to unwind if you do not understand how the Bible works, what its purpose is. So here we go. Here's what Christ says in Revelation 22. As an aside, which is my way of not saying... I actually listen to a guy on sports radio that every sentence he says, yeah, and because I think it, I have to put it down. It's the rule. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of Revelation. And Revelation 1 is the first chapter of Revelation, which is why I get the Huge sums of money that I get, and he brings up the prophecy of the blessing of Revelation 1 3, and then he brings it up again in Revelation 22 7 through 19. Probably just a coincidence, or maybe it's a bookend situation or a parenthesis. Maybe once again he brings it up and then he finishes with it. He's very organized for an infinite God. Thanks for laughing. Here we go. Thank you for pretending to laugh. I'll take anything I can get. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Does that sound familiar? Read 1-3 of Revelation. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and not your brethren and not of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. 
worship God. That's an angel saying that. Now, verse 10, and God said to me, now most of yours will have a little H-E there, but it is God now who intervenes. God says, do not seal, or Christ says, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice, you see the prophecy of this book in verse 7. You see the words of this book in verse 9. Now you're here again in verse 10. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give me every one according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Is that what he says in Revelation 1? He says the same thing again in Revelation 22, and he talks about the prophecy. The blessing of the prophecy. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. Finally, I'll read, I'll skip to 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book for this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, I know and I agree that uh, the entire the entire scripture is intended there. I'm not trying to say it isn't. I'm just pointing out to you that five times he uses the same phrase. And one of them is identical. It's a repeat of Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who keeps the prophecy, or the words of the prophecy of this book. Now it's asked this. When God declares someone to be blessed, what does he mean? Does he mean a Mercedes-Benz? No, he doesn't. Does he mean good health and prosperity? No, he doesn't. That is apostasy. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine is apostasy. You can tell by just looking at the airplanes. These And the houses that they have. They are getting ridiculous. They are doomed men, and it is love to tell them so. And women. And it is the most popular doctrine. Doctrine. It's the most popular. Starts with C, ends with P. It's the most most popular doctrine in the world today. And, of course, in the United States. How does God define being blessed? How did he define it in Genesis 3.21 where it's first illustrated? He defines it by being covered with his blood. At 1 John, now, uh, I didn't read 1 John yet. I need to do that too, don't I? Or did I? 1 John 1, 8 through 10? I don't think I did. I get confused easily now, as you know. First John, um, chapter 1, eight, verses 8 through 10. 
Okay, here it is. If we, if we say we have no sin and we deceive ourselves, and, then, and this again, Ralph Lorraine are asking how this fits into Thyatira, and we're getting to that. If we say that we have no sin and we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, you have to confess what is it that's being confessed? And what is the cleansing solution? He says he's going to cleanse us of our sin. How does he do that? What is the cleansing solution? Obviously, it's the blood of Christ. It cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Ask another question. Is John the Apostle, the writing instrument of the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is the author, John is who he uses, is John referring to a specific sin or all sin? Confess. What does confess mean? Confess means literally to say the same thing that God says about sin. What does God say about sin? And really quickly, who lies about sin? Who won't confess what God, who won't say what God says about sin? Who in fact lies about it? That is where? Genesis 3, hi Susan. That's the first lie of Genesis, I'm sorry, the first lie about sin. There's a couple of clues right there. One thing that God says about sin is that all, and all means all, all sin, all are sinners. Here's a newsflash, you're a sinner, so am I, we're sinners. Don't ever worship the sinner. Notice the angel said, don't worship me. There's some implications there. If you do not say that all have sinned and they're all in need of a cleansing blood, his blood, the blood of Christ, the blood transfusion, the blood, flesh and bone, bone replace communion service. If you do not say that, you are filthy still and are declaring God to be a liar. That's what 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says. You're declaring God to be evil if he's a liar. And the definitive evidence of what's going on here is first John one seven, which I conveniently omitted. Because that's what you do. If you want to figure out one through eight, you back up from five through seven. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Do you believe that? That's why you confess sin, see. You have to understand that there is no sin in God at all. That will occur again. That's in Thyatira. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, I hope you can see how Genesis 3, 4, the blood of Jesus Christ, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I hope you see how they fit. They fit. Don't be surprised that they fit. One more thing. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Revelation 22, 11. Now let me reword it kind of. He who is holy, let him be holy more. 
I'll reword it again. That he who is holy, let him be holy still. Let him be still holy. Let him remain holy. Let him be always holy. Let him be eternally holy. When you study the actual words of the, and the meaning, the literacy of those words, the literalness, you will end up there, I believe. Okay, from this, a very quick, very quick seeming diversion. It's not really. We're going to go to the temple prostitute of John 8. We're going to do that because of 2 Kings 9.22 and Revelation 2.20. Thyatira, as you remember from a couple weeks ago, not last week, that was black hole singularity. A couple weeks before that, or a week before that, Thyatira is told that he has against her that she let, that church let, that woman Jezebel to teach and seduce. So Thyatira has this relationship with Jezebel. And she taught and seduced the church, the fourth church. And that woman Jezebel is actually the translated to your wife Jezebel. So he assigns Jezebel as the wife of the church of Thyatira, which puts her, puts Thyatira in what position? That's right, you all yell out Ahab. Because Jezebel literally was the wife of Ahab, and now Thyatira is in the Ahab position with regard to the symbol that is Jezebel being used by who? Who says to them that they have allowed Jezebel to come in and seduce them? That's right, infinite God said that. <coughs> so whenever you're going to do Jezebel, you go to 2 Kings 9.22. Why are we doing Jezebel? Because in order to solve the prophecy, get the blessing, if you will, hopefully, you're going to have to solve Jezebel. Because she's right in there. So are the Nicolaitans and Balaam. They're almost a triumphant. So we have to take them all on. So Second Kings 9. I thought I'd, I had... Um... Oh, my goodness. I did. I just can't find what I'm doing. There we go. 2 Kings 9.22. Now it happened when Joram saw this, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace as long as the whoredoms of your mother, Jezebel, and her witchcraft are so many? So I have kings about to kill one another. One's going to kill one. And Jezebel is brought up and is brought up with this phrase. What peace as long as the whoredoms of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. So Jezebel is, dis- is defined for us really fast. So get rid of this. So we have this description of Jezebel. She is a whore. She is a mother. And she is a witch. How's she doing so far? Obviously, when we get that, where do we go? That sends us through the Bible collecting... Whores, mothers, and witches. And the foremost, when it comes to that, where do we go? First one, first place we should go when we're going to talk about the mother of all whores and witches. I helped you there. Yeah, that's right. We're going to go to Revelation 17. 
Very good. The scarlet woman. She's drunk on the blood. She drinks blood. She's drunk on the blood of the saints and martyrs. She's called the great whore, the scarlet woman. She's called the mother of all whores. And she carries a cup. She has a cup. And the cup is filled with the filthiness of her fornication. And she has her name on her forehead. And that's Jeremiah 3 3. Jeremiah 3 3 talks about prostitutes, the whore's forehead it is called. It's a custom for prostitutes in ancient Israel to wear a headband that identified them as prostitutes. Call it advertising. Obviously they had no fear of doing it. They were openly walking through the community wearing these bands, some of them very expensive gold bands. Jezebel, 2 Kings 9, 7, is to be avenged because she has killed so many of the servants of God. She has the blood of the servants of God on her. Literally, Jezebel does, which is exactly what it is said of the great whore, the mother of all whores in Revelation 17. Elisha reveals that all of Ahab's houses, so everybody, every Every descendant of Ahab will be killed. That's what Elisha says, because he is the husband of Jezebel, and he has done what Jezebel told him to do with respect to the nation of Israel. So we have to ask ourselves, what did Jezebel do that she's called this, that she has this unity with Revelation 17? And he also said, Elisha says, that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs. And the similarities between the person Jezebel, the literal person, and the symbol that is the great whore of Revelation 17, they're plain as you can find. They're stated as clear as you would wish. Jezebel portrays great evil and was greatly wicked. But how was she? A great evil that becomes manifest in the tribulational period. So whatever Jezebel did in her real life, actual life, is going to be demonstrated by some organization that she represents in the great tribulation. And I inferred last Sunday, probably two Sundays ago, because last Sunday was great black hole singularity, so I'm wrong about that. The child sacrifice, I said child sacrifice, the killing of children is an element of Jezebel, which is why Christ takes him on in the fourth church prophecy, or the fourth church of the seven church prophecy. Killing the children is Baal worship and Moloch. Baal, Moloch. This all will go back to Nimrod, but that's for another day. The killing of the little ones with regard to Baal and Moloch was an act of worship. King Ahab, the husband of Jezebel, did this. He incorporated that evil into the nation of Israel. And he did it at Jezebel's insistence. I think that is obvious. King Ahaz burned his son as an offering, 2 Kings 16.3. So that's an Israeli king. Jeremiah 32.35. And they built the high places of Baal, with they, Israel, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch. That is where... And then God says this. This is God speaking in Jeremiah 32, 35. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire of Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind. There he is calling us. One of these days that could be true. He won't call. He'll have a trumpet. We'll all fall down. Do you remember what I read in 1 John 1, 5 through 7? There is no sin in God at all. Here it is again. I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind. That is God saying that. That they should do this abomination. Those are the words of the Lord God of all flesh. That's one of his titles, Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Notice that God in that passage, he interchanges Baal with Moloch. Moloch's whole purpose was to kill children. That's why he was, that's how he was worshipped. Kill infants, newborns. Just start paying attention to this country. And see who's worse. Moloch was usually represented, do you know what he's represented by? What figure? A bull. And it was bronze. Now that fascinates me because I know that it wasn't just bronze, that they made him out of all kinds of things. So I want to know did they ever make a golden bull? Gold would melt more easily than bronze because the hands of the bronze bull, Moloch, Baal, they're interchangeable. They would be heated. They were out here and the, and the children would be laid into the hands and burned to death in the hands of their God. So when you placed your children into the hands of your God and your God was Baal, Jezebel's God, or Moloch, Jezebel's God, they're interchangeable, then you're putting your, hand, your children into the hands of of a God that kills them. Start beginning to notice the symmetry. Thank you. I see it. I suppose that a golden male calf could be fashioned and allowed to burn children. That might explain a few things, would it not? You think it's arbitrary that the children of Israel made a male calf and made it gold and worshipped it, and God saw it as an abomination? Exodus 32, 19 through 35, for example, might be explained by this, because what did Moses do? He made the children drink the powdered ashes, the children of Israel drink the powdered ashes of the golden calf. And he killed 3,000 men of Baal, or Moloch, and Moses fed the golden male calf to the nation of Israel, or those, to those men. And the Lord plagued the people. Because of what they did with the calf that Aaron made. That's Exodus 32, 35. The people committed a great sin. Exodus 32, 31. A great sin. Great sin is associated with Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 13, 13. And Genesis 18, 20. That's where great sin begins. That's, that is the Nephilim and that is Sodom. 
It's also Exodus 32 with the golden calf. And they worshipped Exodus 32.8 and sacrificed to the golden calf. What's the obvious question? What did they sacrifice? Absolutely right. A for Bill. Bill the cow gets the golden cow thing right on the money. I mean, that makes perfect sense to everybody here. How did they sacrifice? That's the obvious question. Who got sacrificed? There can be no dispute that Jezebel was the high priestess of Baal, and Baal is Moloch, and Moloch is Baal. Moloch, Leviticus 21 through 5, is specifically called out by God as the instrument of killing children. That's Jezebel. It's what she did. What she had Ahab do. What she had the nation of Israel do. Kill children. Child killing. Anyone who would give a child to Moloch, God said, was to be quickly executed. Just get him out. Take him out now. Anyone who would not kill the ones who gave their children to Baal would also like would also be put to death. Leviticus 24. Did you understand that? If you find somebody that is giving children to Moloch, you kill him. If you see somebody who's giving to children to Moloch and you don't kill him, then you're killed. That's how God deals with this. Leviticus 21 through 5. The Lord God spoke and said, Leviticus 25. Speaking of the, he's speaking of the children killers here. I will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit whoredom with Moloch. So here we go. Whoredom. Jezebel. Prostitute. It's going on in Thyatira. And I am suggesting, not very subtly, aren't I, the Jezebel of Revelation 2.20, Thyatira, who allowed the evil of Jezebel, Thyatira did. Thyatira ate the things sacrificed to Baal and Moloch. So what are the things sacrificed to Moloch and Baal? There's only one thing it can be. I'll say this. We, we celebrate Saturn where we exchange gifts and we have all this stuff. We do it on what day? Do you know? December the 25th. And I get in a lot of trouble. I've lost people because I have said, you cannot defend Christmas. I know that's a Catholic term. It means Christ sent. But Christ did not get sent on the winter solstice. That is the day of Saturn worship. Constantine converted it into Christian and Saturn. He had to appease the the, the Saturn worshippers. It's also called Cronus. Have you ever seen a picture of Cronus? The most famous one is, is that he's depicted doing something. What is he doing? Eating a child. Relatively famous painting. There you go. I would certainly expect that. Jezebel killed the children of God, his servants, and she also killed children. Literally killed them both. Eating and, and Thyatira ate that which was burned by Moloch. And God calls it a great, great wickedness. Thyatira allowed this in the church. Now, is Thyatira gone? No, I don't think so. I think you're going to find a lot of churches in this country that think killing children is a great plan. 
never read any of these things and don't intend to. Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, who is the white hot one, the shining white light, the blinding light, says in Revelation 2.23 about the Jezebel uh, people in the church of Thyatira, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who knows the minds and hearts. Again, he who knows and searches the minds and hearts. And he's going to kill the children of Jezebel with death. He's the omniscient judge. Again, the ancient of days. So you go to Daniel 7. You see him because that's who's showing up at Thyatira. Now imagine the trial, the proceedings of having the judge in front of you. And the judge has omniscience. He has omniscience. He can search your mind. Who's going to lie to the omniscient rememberer of all things? Is anybody going to lie to the judge? Answer, yes, they are. He's going to remember all things. He can search your mind. He knows every thought of every mind. How many are going to lie to him? Well, many are going to lie to him. How many is many? How many, many liars do I have? I might have billions. Why will they lie? What's their plan? They're going to stand in front of the Ancient of Days, and they're going to deny that he has omniscience. They're going to say, you can't read my mind. You cannot. You're not omniscient. You're not infinite. You're going to, they're going to say to him that he is, in fact, the liar. In other words, that's a replication of Genesis 3, Satan's template. Thanks, Susan. So, really fast now. Jezebel, the literal, actual Jezebel, killed children. Let's ask this question. Whose children did she kill? Because she killed them to sacrifice them to Baal Moloch. Whose children were they? Who gave their children to the priests of Baal? On what basis did they do it? I could ask the obvious question, but it's politically incorrect. I'll probably get banned from googly eye or whatever its name is. Who are the modern day priests of Baal? Who are the mothers giving their children to? To be burned. How, God, how long will God let this go? This is, I know it's a horrible thing, but those children, we have not to worry about their, about their destination. Um, but this is an end of the times element here, in my view. Jesus Christ, who hates the killing of children, Proverbs 6.17, states clearly that he will kill Jezebel's children with death. Revelation 2.23. And he does it so that all the churches will know who he is. What's implied by that? There's a lack of understanding of who Christ is. Are we in a situation where we have a lack of understanding of who Christ is? Yes, absolutely. Besides the positioning, the juxtapositioning would be more correct, of Jezebel's children and the children of God which we're going to have to investigate further because I have Jezebel's children and I have the children of God. God says, uh, let me read that really fast. I know I'm running out of time here. It's all these people that write us these letters' fault. We would have got through all of it like I always do and answered all the questions and wrapped it all up neatly except for them. 
And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. That's what Christ says of Jezebel. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, which means he's the judge. So we have to spend time on there shall be great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. Because every place Christ says great tribulation, we're going to have to know. Guess how many places he says it? Three times. One here in Thyatira. Matthew 24, 21. The great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, nor shall ever be. Revelation 7, 14. These are the ones who came, come out of the great tribulation. Those are the three times that Christ uses the term great tribulation. I submit we can safely concede that God, Jesus God, was aware of his previous usages of the words great tribulation when he repeated it at Revelation 2.22. So what did he mean by great tribulation? That speaks to Stuart's letter. Just in case you think I have no plan, like you always think. So setting aside for now Jezebel's symbolism as it applies to Thyatira and Jezebel's children, who they are literally, Jesus kills Jezebel's children with death as he defines death, Revelation 2014. And he is the ancient of days here. That's why he calls himself son of God, eyes like fire, feet of fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Those are elements of the ancient of days Daniel 7, Daniel 10, and Genesis 15. He's the judge, the omniscient, infinite judge of all things, John 5.22. That's how he describes himself when he is fulfilling John 5.22. Repeat a little bit. Jesus Christ kills the children of Jezebel with death so that all the children will know that he's the one who searches the minds and hearts. He makes this connection between the, being the judge of all and Jezebel's children. And there's a concurrency implied that all the churches learn what it means when, he sees, when they see him kill Jezebel's children with death. Not a succession, but a concurrency with regard to this prophecy that is such a blessing. And we're not going to do that today. And by, by we, I mean me. Okay. Jezebel came really close to extinguishing the line of David. Did you know that? Through her own children. She came very close. Got down to one. And she's the wicked whore, the painted, adorned whore, prostitute, who was given time to repent. She's given time to repent, Revelation 2.21, by Christ. Literally and figuratively what she symbolizes. So I'm now looking at a prostitute that's given a chance to repent, even though she's under a death sentence. Where do I go now? Where do I go? i got a prostitute. Obviously, that's John 8. Obviously. The Apostle John, he, he's the transcriber, if you will. He's the, he's the vehicle of Revelation, and he's also the vehicle of John 8. I think he would know. He would include, and he did, he just so happens, he includes the account of the temple prostitute. Notice how I said that, temple prostitute. I say temple prostitute for many reasons, because in Baal and in Israel and with regard to Jezebel, there's something called cult prostitution. It's mentioned often in the Old Testament. 
It's something we've got to find out about. What is cult prostitution? For today, just today, just so I can get through this really fast and not leave anything out. Typically, the temple, every temple, pagan, Israel, typically had structures to house the temple prostitutes. Because we're going to have prostitutes wherever we have churches. Nothing's changed. I was going to read John 8, 1 through 11. You know about this, right? I hope you do. The prostitute is brought out and they accuse her of being caught in adultery. How did they accuse her, the Pharisees? They accused her because they're the ones having adultery with her. She works for them. She lives in the temple prostitute's house. Why did they pick her? They picked her for a reason. What was it? This is, as an aside, No euphemisms allowed. Jesus Christ follows John 8 through 11 with John 8, 12. That's the great statement, the truth, a magnificent truth. Jesus Christ says that he's the light of life. That's Genesis 1, 3. He's the light that makes life, the light that comes to the darkness. He follows the, the account of the temple prostitute with that. Why does he do that? Obviously, it's intended, duh. Ask why. Okay, so Jesus Christ is in his own temple. The temple is his house. He calls the temple. Now, this is Herod's temple. You can make that case. It's not the true temple that was Zerubbabel. Some would give Zerubbabel a lot of credit for this temple. We'll get to that sometime. By sometime, I mean never. Okay, maybe, hopefully. Jesus Christ is in his temple. This is the house of God. There's only one house of God. Please don't call yourself the house of God. Or you're building the house of God because that's the temple of Israel. Overdone, finished, don't argue with me. Okay, you can. Bring a lunch. Christ God is in the temple. And that's extraordinary. He's returned. He left in Ezekiel 10. Now he's back. This is the spot. He comes back to this spot where the Solomonic temple was constructed. What's so special about this particular location? Because it's special. God loves it for some reason. He keeps going back to it. Anyway, the Pharisees come again. They got a plan. No doubt after they had lengthy committee meetings. They, had a, they got all together and they discussed the pros and the cons and the uh, possibilities and they anticipated every contingency and they had a lengthy consideration. They're going to bring one of their own temple prostitutes, Jesus, and they're going to demand that he execute her. And they got all these witnesses that said, she's an adulterous woman and we caught her in adultery. You got to kill her. That's the plan. Now, more on next week on the logic and the anatomy of their trap here. For today, Jesus doesn't respond. What's he do? He puts his finger, the finger of God, into the dust. What do we do now? We have to find every place where the finger of God goes into the dust. Absolutely right. Where's the first place? That brings us to Genesis 2, 7. That brings us to Genesis 3.14. That's where Satan is put into the dust by God. That is Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 3.19. Dust you shall go. Exodus 31.8, Deuteronomy 4.13, Exodus 8.16 through 17, John 9.6, Daniel 5.22-29. That's right off the bat. We're not left off the bat. 
sinner off the bat. Just to start, eventually this is going to bring us to spitting because God likes to spit. And he picks up the dust and he makes eyeballs out of it. He does all kinds of interesting things. Puts them into people that didn't have any eyes. Had them removed by the Assyrians. For today, we're just going to do Exodus 8, 16 through 17. Lice, dust. That's the third plague. And it stunned the Egyptian magicians. When the dust was turned to lice, the Egyptian magicians went, okay, we can make snakes, but we can't do this. This is the finger of God. So the finger of God and dust are put together all through the Bible. And we have it with this temple prostitute who they want him to kill. The magicians say something amazing in Exodus 8.19. Because of something that happened in the Exodus 8.17. All of the dust of the land became lice. It doesn't say just this little... All of the dust of the land became lice. Everything is covered in lice. Very similar to frogs. But he took dust and he turned it into lice. Covered every beast, every human being, everything. Every piece of dust became lice. Which is why women who are designed for housework. Never mind. Should vacuum every day. There's an applicational sermon. I'm trying trolling for mail. That's what I'm doing. But just imagine if your house, if all the dust in my house, we got sawdust, we got dog dander, we got we had a horrifying mess in that place. Every day Lori weeps for hours instead of vacuuming. <laughs> Half hour to write that joke. <laughs> But just imagine if our house turned, every piece of dust turned to lice. I'm talking about all the land of Egypt, all the dust. How much dust, all of it turned to lice. How much lice is that? All of that dust went to something that is alive. So again, the finger of God did that and dust and you, so when you have dust in the finger of God, it makes me consider lice. What's my obvious question? Christ's finger, the finger of God is in the dust. What's it do? Does it make lice? How much lice did he make? Did he pick the lice up? Look at a guy and say, here, have some lice. Now, if you're standing there and you want to kill a temple prostitute and you want him to kill it, and instead he turns all the dust to lice and you're a Bible scholar, what do you think? So what does lice have to do with prostitution? He also says, he who has not committed adultery, and I'm going to change it a bit, because I think it's a specific sin and not all sins. Thank you, Ralph and Lorraine. He who has not committed adultery with this woman, the temple prostitute, you kill her with a stone. How many of them had not committed adultery with that temple prostitute? Now, that's my paraphrase. I think he made the sin specific to the woman. Others disagree. And again, 
he goes down to the dust two times. What's that mean? God goes into the dust twice with his finger here in John 8. Finally, God says to the prostitute, don't be a cult prostitute anymore. We have to find out what a cult prostitute is. It's Deuteronomy 23.18. You can look it up on your own. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, this is the sin of the cult prostitute. And that helps explain a great deal of it.